Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, Investorpreneur, where investors meet entrepreneur. Here we talk about everything investing, business, investment, real estate, and do I have something in store for you guys today. Joining me is a very good friend who's, who's going to share a journey about what is current, what is the future of real estate in Canada. So my name is Peter Leung, and I'm a global real estate investor. I own, invest, and develop properties around the world. So you've probably seen me in videos on the stage working with serial entrepreneurs, high net worth, or investors that are looking to get into the real estate or looking to get into investments. I'm also a private equity business and angel investor as well. And today I've got the blessing of having Derek DeMarty on the show talking about his experience of real estate because he comes from a very different perspective of real estate where he was started from debt. Now, he's also the president of Epics Developments, where he builds homes catering to homeowners in mind. Now, he's also got a background in debt as a mortgage and underwriting. And really, he's now a developer doing a fantastic job in Vancouver, where he's got a huge amount of projects premiering. And one of the next ones called Popolo. So, Derek, welcome to the show. Hi, Peter. Very nice to see you. It's very good to see you. I haven't seen you for a little while. And thank you for sharing your experience, your knowledge with us. It is a tremendous blessing to have you here because you're on the ground, you see what's happening, and you're doing everything real estate. Thank you very much for the uh, the invitation. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to this. Excellent. So, Derek, let's start off with this. Can you tell us how you got into I me? Mean, you've done real estate for a very long time now, but in a short summary, how did you get started in real estate? Because it didn't start as a developer. No, I... I actually started off working for banks. I used to be a lender and say used to. I did that for the first 10 years of my career. That was back in Toronto. I worked for a few investment banks, lending money on more institutional style properties. I ended up moving out to Vancouver in March, 2006. That's going back almost 15 years now. And I started working on the private debt side. And it was when I was working on the private debt side, that my, my entrepreneurial spirit really kicked off. You were running a business within a business. So I was able to go out and network with all these other entrepreneurs and young developers and finance their projects. And to make a long story short, I did that for about three years after I moved to Vancouver. And then 2008, 2009, the market obviously got changed quite a bit out here. And I stopped working for the banks and I ended up starting up a mortgage brokerage company. And I think that's actually where I met you, uh, VSM. And, and I've got another guy running that for me now. And I'm kind of more focused on the development side and running Epic's developments. That is so, awesome. so you've seen both sides from a developer. That is obviously our, you know, banks are one of our friends. They're the joint venture capital partner. The biggest partner you'll ever have. Absolutely. So, and, you, and, so um, what did you learn from that? working? You have a, a tremendous insight because you're also, you have a mortgage business as well today. And yeah. you also have had the experience with working with large financial institutions. What can you share with us in terms of lending, working with banks, like you say, one of our biggest partners. So what type of things, what type of, is there things to avoid or challenge? You know, you learn really how to structure a deal and you can take a deal that on its own with no debt would be a successful deal. And if you put the wrong type of debt on that deal, you're going to end up with very different outcomes. You might lever it too much. The debt might be too expensive. Uh, you might end up having the debt uh, stay outstanding for too long. And there was alternate ways to structure that deal, maybe pay a little bit more for the property, but get a really long close. You really have to know how your lenders are going to look at things because at the end of the day, they're going to look at their numbers the way that they look at it. And they're going to lend you money based on the way that they look at your numbers. So 
the more you understand how they look at the numbers, the better you are going to be coming up with the structures when you're pitching them. I mean, it's a very integral part of, uh, of real estate development and just real estate buying and selling. You have to know your numbers. So in that, I'm just going to drill a little bit more on that because that's a very important topic you just mentioned in terms of working with banks. So how do you go pitch right now? You work with you know, a number of different financial lenders, private, everything. So do, do you, what do you do? What are some of the things that you do to make sure that you can raise the capital from banks and also private money? If I can... Part of that, uh, we do lean on my, my, my lending background in the past. And, and we don't sit down for conversations with lenders unless we've underwritten our project first. Um, and we're going to underwrite it the exact same way that the banks do. If there's any problems that we uncover throughout that, we solve them before we go and sit with the lender. And we're upfront with any of the kinks in the deal. It's your lender is your biggest partner. And I think it's one of the, the biggest mistakes that, that younger developers are going to make or younger entrepreneurs. Your bank is your biggest partner. It doesn't matter whether you're in real estate or just running a regular business. If you're cut off from financing, it, it, it affects almost every single business out there. That's um, a very good point. Very good yeah. point. How, how do you build that relationship with the banks? Like for somebody who's starting off, Shockingly, the originators, the guys that are doing the deals at the bank, they love going out and meeting people and networking and sitting and talking business to you. Um, I did that job for, for 10 years and, and I can tell you, they, they wake up in the morning, they want to go out and talk to guys that want to do deals. And being able to pick their brains and learn what they're looking for, it's invaluable. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have that background because knowing that it's, we've developed our own way of pitching our deals to banks. And it's not just what we do for our own deals. We do that for our clients on the brokerage side as well. It's something that every lender we've sat down with, they, they, they love our write-ups, mostly because we do their work for them. And we, we highlight what's wrong with the deal. We, we put a solution in front of them. They don't always buy it, but they respect the fact that we have underwritten everything and we're presenting them an underwritten deal that they can sit down in 30 minutes, know whether or not this is something that's going to fit with their book. That's very important. So that also relates to your due diligence of a project, right? In order for you to be able to underwrite, before you put your perspective of what the banks look at, you have to be able to look for projects. You've done successful projects, huge, a lot of them actually, uh, that in Vancouver and Squamish and a lot of different areas. So how did, let's start off with the first one. How did your first project, obviously you, you must be sweating bullets. It's bigger. Yeah. You know, like, how did it all start? First project. It was so. First project. I was actually partnering with a former client of mine. It was a father-son team. The father ended up having some health issues unrelated to the business. He ended up passing on. The son, as I said, a former client of mine. We were out having dinner one night, and he had learned a lot of the business from his dad. He hadn't learned the finance and legal side of the business yet. And over the course of a couple of dinners. And a few bottles of wine, we decided that we knew enough to become dangerous and go buy our first site. And so you know, we, uh, we put together a lot of family money, talked to all of our friends. We raised, I can't even remember how much it was. I think it was $2 million for the first deal, which seemed like crazy amounts of money at the time. But we did that. And, and I also belong to a, another kind of networking mentorship group. Uh, it's a group called the Phoenix Group. It's a private group here in Vancouver. And it's a bunch of senior developers that are, and senior guys in the industry that are trying to help nurture the younger guys coming up. And so I'd been a member of this group for a while and word got out in that group that I was doing my first project. And one of the senior guys that owned one of the funds in the city pulled me aside afterwards and said, I'd like to have lunch with you. I said, 
absolutely. I know I knew I was going to get a free lunch, so why am I going to turn it down? And uh, we sat down and he told me he liked what I was doing and he liked the location that I had picked. And I didn't really realize what fund he was at the time. And it turns out I've now, if I look back, I've probably done six or seven deals with these guys. But he told me, he goes, uh, I like what you're doing. I, you know, I like gumption. I'd love to uh, finance your first project. And I can tell you, being a young guy, I didn't have a big balance sheet at the time. One thing I learned, being a lender, somebody offers you a lot of money for your first project, you just take it. Yeah. Don't negotiate, you just take it. And I did, and I've still got a, a great relationship with the guy. The guy's name is Doug Bentley. And I still chat with them probably monthly today. And that's uh, 11 years later. So, so yeah. you built that relationship. You got yourself in the right environment. And so you were able to, you know, essentially build your way through that network and, and, and now be able to, you know, successfully fundraise. And that was a big part of you being started in your first project. hundred percent. You, if you're in real estate development, you're naturally going to have a few deals that don't go as planned. Hopefully they don't cause losses. There's maybe break-evens. We've been fortunate enough not to have any losses up until now. But you definitely want to make sure that the first two or three deals you do aren't the ones that are going to have losses. You're not going to have very many investors after that. <laughs> no, um, we, we've had a great track record. Uh, it's been 11 years. We've, we've never lost a penny yet. Uh, we've been through a couple cycles. And I, I do say knock on wood. Markets can get tough. We're in a tough market right now. But again... I think with uh, with proper underwriting and, and good execution, you can really limit a lot of your downside. Yeah. So Derek, in terms of due diligence, right? What type of things do you do when you look at a project, when you're looking for a site, when you're looking for a piece of land? Vancouver land is very expensive in the, in the concept yeah, of global scale, right? <laughs> Not cheap, right? Um, Not a couple million dollars doesn't get you very far anymore. No, um, no, um, that's a silent condo. At this point, you know, can you walk us through some of the key due diligence things that you do to make sure of that course. you can play the risk? So we will do everything from environmental testing on the land to make sure that the land are, uh, is clean. And if there is a contamination, I want to know what that's going to cost to clean up high level. If we can't get our heads around either of those, we turn away from the deal. And that's mostly driven by lenders. If you can't prove out exactly what's wrong with your land and what a, what a remediation cost is going to ballpark, nobody's going to lend you any money. Uh, so all of a sudden you've, you've, you've got a piece of dirt that nobody wants to finance. And I can tell you, your numbers aren't going to work. Yeah. So definitely we always look at the environmental. If we are moving ahead to do a, a you know, large scale development, we're going to poke some holes in the dirt, get a higher geotechnical engineer and see what kind of soil we're dealing with. We will read all of the zoning bylaws and all the official community plans pertinent to our deal. If time, if, if we have the time to do this, we would set up a meeting with the city and kind of walk through what we want to do just to make sure that they don't see any issues with this. We'll talk with appraisers. We'll talk with lenders. We will talk most importantly with our builder. We have a great relationship with uh, two construction companies, one that we primarily use for everything. And then another group that we know in case something happens with the main group that we use, we've got another relationship to, to fall back on. And we get prices, high level prices. Are you guys building buildings similar to what we want to build currently in this market? And what are your prices looking like? We talk to the appraisers. We talk to real estate agents. What, what are these units going to sell for at the end of the day? And I understand everything at this point is hypothetical, but it really helps you to build a really good underwritten profit and loss model for your deal. And then we've got our own internal metrics that, that these things have to meet. And if they meet all of them, that, that's not necessarily a buyer or no buy decision. That just allows us to study it further. There's also the intangible stuff with real estate, the location, what's happening in the neighborhood, 
just because something pencils out on paper doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a good deal for you to invest in. And, and sometimes there's deals which might look a little bit more marginal on paper, but you love the location and you love what's going on in the neighborhood and you just, you believe in the vision for, for you know, call it the next five, 10 years in that location. So we do a lot of underwriting, a, a lot of due diligence. So how many deals generally, there's a couple parts we can go with here, but first, how do you, how many deals do you need to go through? Like how oh. much is due diligence before you find one site? Because a lot of people think real estate investment, easy. You got money, you, you no. buy it, that's it. No. So, so in the heyday, when Vancouver was going up 10, 15% a year, I would probably say we would look at 30 to 50 deals before we'd find one that, that kind of pencils out the way that we like it. I wouldn't be able to tell you currently because I've been looking for two years and I have not found anything that, that is penciled out locally here. We've got a unique situation. In that we've got no land left. We've got a, a city council here that for one reason or another does not like to give additional density for any good reason whatsoever. You just, and, and, and yet our, our single family market has remained somewhat resilient over the years. Sure, the homes might've cost 5 million before and they're down to three. At 3 million, they still don't make sense as a development site. Um, and now you've got single family market picking up again. And so you look at that as a developer and you go, man, the, the, the end unit values, those aren't going up like they used to. Land values apparently are, and construction costs are going up. It's not a good formula for the long run. And something's got to show that. Um, something really does. That's not to say that, that guys can't find deals in a market like this, but You've got a lot of developers fighting over a couple small deals and none of them are stretching to do any of them. So it's, it's a unique situation, nothing like anything I've seen before. So it is important to build that pipeline, but it's hard to, but you've been diligent in terms of going, Hey, we need to shift through everything, but you don't, you're not in a hurry, but it seems to go, hey, I don't find a fight. One of, one of my mentors told me something. And it's been one of the hardest things I've had to do over the last two years. It's a longer story than this, but I'll paraphrase. And essentially what he's telling me is that sometimes when you're doing nothing, you're actually doing something and it's really hard. And he was essentially the right-hand man to, to Galen Weston Sr., a company in Canada called Loblaws Corporation, huge company. Yeah. And these guys are basically a real estate company that, that sell food, even though they own a chain of grocery stores. They're, they're a real estate company. And he was their strategic advisor. And if he's advising, or when he was working for them, if he was advising those guys uh, to do the same thing, it's probably something wise for someone like me at my size to probably heed the same advice. So Derek, how then do you choose develop? Like, like you, you say, a builder, choosing a builder. Can you give us some tips as to, as a developer, you're going, hey, what, what is the difference between a developer and a builder? And, and what point does those, both are very fundamentally important, but Huge. they focus on slightly different things though. So can you yeah. highlight the differences and where and how to choose the right builder to, to do the projects? Absolutely. A developer, if you think about it like this, the developer is the one that's going to choose the dirt, um, going to design the project and decide what is going to go where in that building. The builder is literally the one that is going to take it from, from dirt to the final building. And they're going to focus on following the, the blueprints or the construction plans that, that the architects do and all the other engineers and build what you tell them to build. And a lot of times you'll see developers 
be a developer and a builder all in one. There's a lot of guys that do that and they vertically integrate. And then there's guys more like myself that are just a solely developer. I don't build myself, but we do. We, we have very good relationships with builders. Yeah. And I could say when you're doing that, a few things I've learned, don't ever partner with another developer builder unless you're partnering with the developer side of it. Meaning if, if they do their own projects and they tell you that they're going to build yours for you, there's an inherent conflict there. Their best workers will always go to their own sites and you'll always be left with their B group. You, you want to build with a builder that A, has experience building exactly what you want to do in the city that you want to do it at the scale that you want to do it. Don't hire guys that do duplexes and tell them to go build a high rise. Don't tell guys that build a high rise to go build a duplex. Believe it or not, they're very different things and they require very different trades and different trade connections and, and relationships. Knowing, the other thing too is as a developer, you have to have an understanding of the building process, not from a sequencing perspective, but you got to kind of be able to walk on site and be able to call them out if they're trying to, forgive me for my language, but blow smoke up your ass. You, you, you got to know how to keep your budget. You got to know how to manage those guys. But at the same time, if you're dealing with a group that, that you've got a lot of trust with, and that goes both ways, you're not going to have a lot of trouble. You're not. So that is the fast track to getting, that's the fast track to getting into development is to make sure that you build those relationships, understand the costs. And, and at the very beginning, did you have a mentor to actually help you along some of those processes? Or how did I, you grow the number? I did. And I, I luckily had them on my lending side. And just people that I've met along my career that I was very fortunate to just strike really good personal relationships with outside of work. And when they heard me going out on my own, I started getting some phone calls and just started randomly hanging out with these guys, taking them for dinner and what have you, buying the bottles of wine and saying, look, I'm happy to sit here and have a couple, couple of drinks with you or have dinner. I'll pay the tab, but I want you to just sit here and tell me stories about what you've seen in your life. Because with real estate, if there's one industry out there that, that this comment holds true, there is no substitution for experience in real estate. Doesn't matter what school you graduated from, how much education you put in your head. If you don't have boots on the ground experience, there's been, you're taking on more risk than you need. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. So now let's pivot in terms of now what you're doing. You've yeah. built up 11 years of project. <laughs> Friends of mine have bought into your projects and that's how yeah. awesome they are. And, and <laughs> you always comment on the site that you chose in the location that you've chosen and how they've benefited become because of a from a buyer's perspective as to how successful the project has been for them a project on the horizon called popolo and that's yes. my hometown so tell yes. us a little bit of how you chose this site and how much did it take to get to this point of you pre-selling these units so this one is an interesting one peter you've been to my office before so i've been in this grandview woodlands neighborhood now for we built the project that the office is in. That's right. So if I start back with that. We've probably been in the neighborhood now for about almost eight years. Yeah. And I fell in love with it. It's like I, I live in Mount Pleasant, which is the neighborhood over. And I love that as well. But Grandview Woodlands to me reminds me of what that Mount Pleasant neighborhood was 10 years ago when I first moved into it. Yeah. We're not too far from downtown. You could be in downtown in 10 minutes. But you really do feel like you're in a little village in the city. There's not a ton of towers around you. There's a ton of interesting little mom and pop shops around. 
tons of parks, tons of schools, small office buildings to work at. It's, it's a really cool, trendy part of the city. But it's also probably the NIMBY capital of North America. People do not like new buildings here. And I got brought an opportunity in late 2016. Um, it was just through a connection that I had. Uh, a friend of a friend tied up a property for another developer and uh, a female friend of mine. And she was also pregnant and brought it to the boss who was extremely busy with other projects. I pitched the deal the same day she told them that she's going to be going on mat leave. And it was, uh, I love it. Drop it. I don't have the time to do this. And so she had worked uh, for about a year trying to put this together. And she eventually called a friend of mine and said, hey, you and Derek should probably get together and do this deal. So we all went out for dinner. One thing led to another. We started putting our own offers in there and we were able to secure this piece of dirt. And it was, it was the price and the location that attracted me. It wasn't so much that we got it at steel. This was when the market was rising quite a bit. And as I mentioned, she had tied it up about, you know, about a year before that. And the vendors actually honored that price when she wanted to cast it along to us. And that kind of clinched the deal. And then we went on about a four-year entitlement binge with the city that I'm just finishing up now. It was a roller coaster. To say that this was the NIMBY capital of the world is, or at least of North America, is not an understatement. We managed to get the project through. Part of the delay was actually on us. Our market changed midway through while we were going through through the uh, rezoning. And I was uncomfortable with about uh, basically floors five and six. I didn't like the way they were designed. We were going with very large format units, great views, really nice finishes. And we were going to reach for, for, for a price point that today I'd be dreaming. I'd never be able to get it. And we started to see the cracks in that market. So we pulled our application changed the design of the building a little bit, not so much from the outside, but we shrunk the unit sizes down, being very cognizant of the price points that we wanted to get. And so that caused us about a seven month delay, just re-reading our application. In retrospect, given everything that we've gone through, it was the best move I ever made. Had we have been left with the original design, that would have been a very tough project to sell today. But having said that, we've, we've submitted, or we're submitting our building permit on Monday next week. So we just resubmitted our development permit and it seems like that's all good. October 5th, we filed our disclosure statement. So we've just started sales. It's, it's an 81 unit building where 12, uh, 12 units sold so far. But again, on the sales side, very different market from what I'm, from what I'm used to in the past. Right. We, we typically put a lot of pride in our buildings. We build quality buildings, very nice finishes, but we try not to reach for the stars in terms of price point. We do try and build for the locals here. And we've got a good following with that. We've got a good track record with that. But the biggest difference I can tell you today, there's a bunch of them, but the biggest one, I don't think I've heard of anybody between me and two other guys I know that are selling right now that had somebody walk into the sales center and buy the first time they walked in. This is, these buyers are becoming way more educated today. They come in the first time on their own. The second time they're going to come maybe with a realtor. The third time they're going to come with maybe their parents or somebody else that they know that, that they value their opinion. The meetings are no longer 10 or 15 minutes. We book an hour for every appointment that we have and everything that we're doing just in this COVID environment is appointment only. So everything is taking longer, but we're getting very good value. We have a very good product with very good floor plans. And so we're, we believe we're going to get to our pre-sale target probably in uh, late December, early January. And construction will start in February. I don't so, think any doubt, Derek, 
No, no I think no doubt <laughs> it hit that car here. With Thank the polling that you have, with the, the quality build that you have, and the, the people around me that have said the amazing things about your project, I don't think that's a problem. How did the unit mix, as you say, in COVID, we're getting to the, whether there's a vaccine, not vaccine, I mean, a lot of that stuff is, is gone by the wayside. The question yeah. then becomes, how does that affect real estate? From your view, how does that impact residential and the residential mixed use field? How does that affect the unit mix? And also, how does that affect the, the future going forward, in your opinion? So I think you're going to start to see a few changes in the multi-unit buildings, a lot more touchless features. So for instance, whereas before you might've only put a power door opener on your front door, you're going to be putting on almost every door now because people just don't want to touch things. You might be having to spend a little bit more money on your elevator and having the elevator kind of work like they do in the, uh, the big high rises downtown. Again, minimizing touch points. I know it might sound a little bit cliche, but it actually works. We do have buyers coming in here and I can tell you the flooring that we're putting in, it has an antimicrobial finish on it. I can tell you the cabinets that we're buying, they're coming in direct from Italy. They've got antimicrobial finishes on them. And it's not an expensive thing to put on. Um, you're usually spending about a, a penny a square foot. It's very cheap, but it's something that all the buyers are asking about today. Outdoor space is huge. I think gone are the days of selling large towers where people don't have balconies and everybody's going to feel like they're, they're cramped up. People want to have an outdoor balcony. They might want to have a large communal outdoor space where they you know, don't have to. I can tell you in Popolo what we did, we were going to put in a gym. And even though we're three blocks away from the community center, we figured we would put a little gym. We had a nice 600 square foot area for amenity space. And we thought it would be a really good amenity for the building. COVID hit. I'm sitting here and I'm going, nobody is going to use a gym where you don't have a full-time cleaner there where you can't watch over people, limiting who comes in and when they come in. And we took a step back and we said, what are we going to do? The building is designed. I can't go and rechange all of this. I've changed all my floor plans. Mm -hmm. What we actually decided to do is to just put in a, a large lounge with a, a chef style kitchen. And it's being pitched in such a way that like, listen, we've got one beds, we've got two beds, we've got three beds, but you might want to have a birthday party for your little kid. You might want to have an office party. You might want to have a dinner party a birthday, an anniversary, and you don't want to invite everybody over into your 800 square foot two bedroom. We're going to have a facility for you to use in this building. Strata can charge whatever they need to charge to clean it. It'll be very reasonable, but we will stock this fully so that you can have those little events downstairs in a room where people can actually space out. There's an outdoor patio for you to use, uh, fully kitted out in terms of barbecues and stoves and fridges and ovens and what, what have you. And the reception we've been getting on that is, is incredible. So instead of a gym, so we've decided, okay, we're going to go against a gym. We're going to put in things that, you know, are catering to the end user going, well, this is how it can serve you. Different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, it actually took some, uh, some discussion even with the city because even the city was uh, questioning why we were doing that. And, and you know what, we sat and we had a discussion with them about it and they understood. Right. What about the, the change of, from your perspective, do you see that, you know, a lot of people from the city are moving outwards, the densification element where they need a bigger space. Do you think this is temporary? Do you think this is, do you think this is a, a long-term trend? I, my personal feeling on this, I think it's going to be a bit of a trend, but I don't think it's going to be as big as people make it up to seem. It's happening. It's happening everywhere across North America. 
But one of the other things that people don't talk as much about is the people that are retaining office space also want to spread out. So I'll give you an example. You might have a building, we'll use an easy example, two tenants in a building, and it's a 20,000 square foot building. You might have one tenant that's uh, 13,000 square feet and the other one is seven. But you might lose that 7,000 square foot tenant. It's not a good thing. You can redemise the space and do whatever. But, but a lot of times the larger tenants that are there want to spread out. So they're not actually looking to reduce space. They're actually looking to take on more. They're not putting any more people in the office. They're just spreading people out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I have a lot of friends that are lawyers and I can tell you a lot of the, the law firms are starting to move more to a hoteling model where they can work from home and maybe they come into the office once or twice a week. And I ask all of them, are they going to be downsizing their office space? And they're not, which is ironic. Tech companies still seem to be growing. Depends on which ones you're looking at. Some of them are still buying office space or renting office space. We just had a huge one. I believe it was Google or Amazon just at least another huge building in, in Vancouver. But then you had uh, the other large tech company from here, Hootsuite. It was one of the other large ones from here. Put something on, it wasn't Hootsuite. It was the e-commerce. Their name is slipping in my mind right now. They do e-commerce. And they're actually putting things on hold. So they had one, one of the Bental centers. They were going to be the major tenant. Um, and I believe they had the lease signed and they're trying to find a way out of it. So you see so. that there is evolution. What about living? Are you finding... Because, of course, Vancouver, there there's a lack of space, as you put it. And they don't there's, want to there's a lack of space. All of a sudden, you can't really maximize the value of the site necessarily. You can only do what the city does. We're bound Correct. by the tools of developers. So from that perspective, are you finding that the one bedrooms are... One bedrooms, we've gotten like micro suites in Vancouver, like 400, yep. 500 square feet, or even less sometimes. So yep. you find that with COVID and, and post-COVID, do you think that hey, maybe these suites are going to have to go bigger? Or what, like you say, the patio is going to have to be in place. Nobody wants to be locked up. But you're going to be, you're going to be, you're going to be based on the perspective of do the people want bigger? Or is it more communal area? Or is it like, so there, think, there's a mixed view on that. I think the demand will be there for that. I think in Vancouver proper, unfortunately, the price is just going to prevent it. I can tell you downtown, there's a lot like, you put up a condo for sale in downtown Vancouver, it's taking a long time to sell. There was a point earlier this year, pre-COVID, where there were three towers that were going to get launched in Coal Harbor in front of Stanley Park there, all trying to get somewhere close to 3,000 a foot. None of them have moved forward. Downtown is going to remain a tough market for the sole reason that land is so expensive there. Construction costs are so expensive there that the reality is you need to hit numbers maybe not 3,000 a foot, but you got to be in the 2,000s a foot in order to have these things pencil out. And the guys that own these sites apparently are not taking them forward today. Downtown is going to struggle for a little bit on the residential side. But I actually do see the, and when I say outskirts of Vancouver, Vancouver is also not very big, but the markets like Kitsilano, Shaughnessy, pretty much ringing around the downtown core, they're actually all seeing increased growth and it's all coming from downtown. And I can tell you a lot of the people that are coming in looking at our project right now, I'd be making this up, but I got to think 20 to 30% of the buyers coming through are coming from downtown. They own a condo there and they want to get out of there. My, my realtor lives in Yaletown and has bought a unit in my building and he's looking right. forward to moving in. Yeah. Interesting. So, so it's, there's it's a lot of, lot of changes in the marketplace. So, you know, in closing, Derek, what can you leave us with in terms of 
you know, advice for those who are looking to invest, I mean, in these challenging, volatile, interesting times, what's your, what's on your crystal ball that you can leave with us? The, the world is not falling apart. There's a lot of fear mongering going around everywhere. And some of it is just because people just don't know what's going to happen. But entrepreneurs are, they're, they're resilient people where opportunities lie. They will find a way to make money at it. They will find a way to open up new businesses one person's misfortune can be somebody else's opportunity. And uh, the real estate market, I, I can't speak worldwide. I, I don't invest worldwide. I would call you first, but I, I can tell you locally here, I'm not seeing anything fall off a cliff. I can tell you one of the things that I personally feel, and I've, this is my own personal feeling is not coming from banks or anything like that. I think that what we're seeing right now in Canada is likely going to be the catalyst for the birth of, call it the 50-year amortized mortgage. And, and if you go back and you look at World War II, when we came out of World War II, that's essentially when the 25-year mortgage was born. The devastation from a financial perspective, what we're seeing right now is far worse than the financial implications from World War II. You look at what CMHC has done on a Canada-wide basis on the multifamily side, and they do offer up to 50-year amortizations. And guess what? We've had a real estate, a rental real estate boom in the last couple of years. And I think the government's going to wake up to the fact that at some point, we're going to need to spur growth in our economy and get our GDP growing again, trying to get some inflation here. And they're going to realize that an application of a 50-year mortgage is going to make a lot of sense, both for home buyers that aren't able to afford the real estate, to the banks that are going to need to start making more money, to the builders that are going to need to start making more money. And it doesn't really cost them anything as long as it's managed properly. You can't give a building that's 50 years old, a 50 year amortized mortgage, but for brand new product, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I think over the next year, you're going to start to hear more and more about that as one potential avenue to help get this world moving forward again. Awesome. Derek, it is awesome to hear your insight. Congratulations to your success. 11 years of history and many more years of history that you're building right now in Vancouver. You're becoming a big time developer. A lot of people are having a sight as to what you're doing. So thank you for making the time and sharing your insights as to current and future of what in real estate and the tidbits that you shared with us. So thank you very much for being on the show. You're welcome. And thank you so much for the invitation. I had a great time. Awesome. And guys, this is another uh, you know element that I wanted to share. Derek had so much success on me, but he's really pounded it and he's really driven to make this all happen. And as you guys heard, it takes a lot of searching. It takes a lot of due diligence to find these great deals. So don't give up. There's these times where there's a bit of a law. There's a little bit of pipeline to fill. When you do your due diligence, find the right type of projects and you can all make it happen. So again, guys, go make it happen. Derek, thank you for your time. I'm sure to catch up with thank you. you hear about all the successes of your project in the next even 45 days to come. Absolutely. I look forward to the next time. Very cool. Thank you very much. Have a great night, guys. You too. Take care, Peter. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.